0: I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping, and letting fall emptied cans of Holsten. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles, with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fagash, and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Albers' Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers, fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst, with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed, and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so lad I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought, and everything changed.
1: That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting published by Bloomsbury, priced at £14.99 and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers.
2: Come on, lads, it's time to kick off.
1: Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes supporters club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash comes Harry, which sweet fancies are making life worthwhile this time? Well, I've gone savoury this time,
3: Dan, because I've been up in the Scottish borders, and so I've bought some macaroni pies. And they're particularly. I bought them from a butcher, and they're particularly fine. The the pastry is a sort of pale with a greyish tinge, like the the limbs of a drowned man. <laughs> um, and while I was there, I, I went to a town, and I, I thought there's a universal truth about wherever you see a shop selling trophies that, that sells trophies and engraves trophies, it's always in the shittest part of town. <laughs> Why is that? It's true all over Europe. If you if you're in a town in I don't know like in Austria or somewhere, you're wandering, you see. Oh no, I'm in a street with a trophy shop in it. Better get out of here fast before <laughs> someone mugs me or tries to sell
1: me methamphetamine. I've noticed two of those as well, is that funeral parlours are nearly always on corners and recruitment agencies are nearly always on the first floor. Are they? Oh, well there you are. We could we're compiling a little town a little town map now. <laughs> There's thirty seconds
3: of observational humour about <laughs> well, I don't know if you call it humour. We could probably get our own chat, we'll be offered our own chat show on BBC. <laughs>
1: We can sell this to Michael McIntyre.
2: Where I live in um, in Bermondsey, there's a, um, they used for a long time, there was a trophy shop that sold sports equipment and trophies that was called Munich 72. There must have oh. been, I would imagine, was probably set up in maybe 1971 when they thought it was a nice futuristic title. It had this kind of Adidas type font, Munich 72, but it was there until sometime in the 1990s. I remember, they suddenly thought, hold on, this is a bit of an old name now, isn't it? They suddenly <laughs> caught on. I was
3: going to say, was that in a rough, was that in a rough part of Bermondsey? But I've lived in Bermondsey, so there's no need to ask that question.
2: Well, yes,
1: what, what kind of question is that? <laughs> uh, any of the moments of great excitement lately, Harry? Well, you know, there has been down. I'm assuming,
3: <laughs> well, there's been several actually. One of which is that I was in a, I was in the small town of Rothbury in Northumberland <laughs> on a Saturday afternoon, and I saw someone get off a bus. A bus arrived from Newcastle. A man got off, and I thought. Wow, that blow looks exactly like Dan Gray. What are the chances (laughs) of that? But it turned out that it wasn't so amazing because it actually was you.
1: What were you doing in Rothbury, I'd like to say that I I turned up to surprise you, but in fact I'd not bothered to tell you I was going to that part of the world thinking it was just far too difficult to get to from where you live. So I just not bothered to tell you that I'd made a spontaneous decision to go to Armstrong park to watch Rothbury against forest hall in one of the local cup competitions that have sprung up all over Northumbria and County Durham. I was in the natural amphitheater ground there. a Beautiful, beautiful little place to watch football, actually right next to the woods where Gaza turned up with the chicken and the lager, which has become something of a, is it a meme? I don't know that turns up all the time. And during the game, One of the most enjoyable things of note was that the Rothbury goalkeeper used a tense that I've never heard before. So, for example, as a fullback went over to a winger to try and stop the cross, he would shout, that doesn't come in, and then during a throw and he would shout, he doesn't turn you, and then later, they don't shoot here it was a really strange tense maybe he could see into the future I'm yeah, not sure but it. It, it reminded me of when my when my daughter was a toddler and we'd say no we're not throwing the plastic mug at daddy today so I, I don't know what to call that tense predictive goalkeeper perhaps have you ever heard that one before I don't think yeah, I do, have it, it no. does
2: sound as though he's maybe just living a few seconds into the future <laughs> which would be a kind of a terrifying thing I, I, I guess once you become aware of it
1: you'd think he'd be playing at a higher level though if that were his skill
3: no, maybe, but maybe the maybe because the, the skill been given to him by a higher power it would be wrong to use it for his own personal benefit in one of those kind of situations because they could take it the powers that have given it to him could take it away from him if he misused it and how
1: did you get on with the rest of your day in Rothbury you were buying well, apart from the fact
3: that bumping into you and talking to you on the pavement for so long meant that the shop that I was going to to buy my Saturday lottery ticket had actually closed by the time I got there (laughs) <laughs> it, it all went well, apart from that. Uh, thank you.
1: And any other great excitement after that? I mean, well,
3: after the great excitement, well, what more? I've got loads of great excitement actually. Well, of course, we we did receive um, we received a parcel for, uh, in the post when Saturday comes addressed to to the three of us from Tunnocks. Um, yes. and they sent us a they sent us a parcel of caramel wafers, and it was sent to us by a lady called Margaret. Uh, it was signed mm. a little note in it thanking us for our support and signed by Margaret on behalf of the directors. Mm. And when when my dad worked at, I think it was at Teesside Bridge, um, in the drawing office there, there was a secretary called Miss Turnbull and she used to collect the cards that came in Brookbond PG-tip packets and paste them into an album. And then when it was, the album was complete, she would send it to me via my dad. And I never met Miss Turnbull, but whenever I think about her, I get a kind of warm feeling in my chest. And I feel a sort of similar feelings about Margaret. He sent us the uh, Tunnex the caramel wafers. So
2: if you're listening, Margaret, thank you very much. It's these acts of small kindness that make a difference. Margaret wrote that it was from the directors and wrote directors in capitals, which, which was a nice touch. Um, a fantastic excitement the day um, that I heard it arrived. It, got sent to the, it wasn't sent to my home address, but to the WC office address where my colleague uh, Richard lives. And I thought if I had a siren, I'd have sounded it. In fact, <laughs> I considered buying a flare gun just so I could fire something <laughs> into the air. Um, uh, Richard had unboxed it. He does have a Tunnock's unboxing licence. That, that's okay. And yes, 48 um, Tunnock's camera workers. Um no, no tea cakes. I did have to uh, suppress a, a slight tinge of disappointment about that. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you very much, Margaret, and, and people at Tunnock's. And, and, mo- and more more excitement, Dan, even more
3: excitement, I mean, that's is, is that um, Heben and Concert finally got to play the uh, the 2020 yeah. FA Vars final at Wembley on bank holiday Monday and Heben won 3-2 thanks uh, to a centre forward Graham Armstrong who is actually the PE teacher at my daughter's old school oh. and then they, they played that on the bank holiday Monday and then on the Saturday Heben played in the quarterfinal of the FA Vars against Warrington Rylands mm. and they lost 1-0 thereby winning the FA Vars <laughs> <laughs> final in the same week that they lost the
1: quarterfinal.
3: That'd be a bit. That'd be one for that goalkeeper at Rothbury to deal with. I reckon.
1: <laughs> it's going to be some pub quiz when that comes up one day, isn't it?
3: Uh, no, know they, they 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 kept the, they held the trophy for about four and a half days. I think. A creditable I mean, I'm not knocking the achievement. It's obviously a fantastic achievement, but also that because of course they played concert in the final. They'd already been knocked out of this year's FA Vars. So they, if concert had won they'd already known that they wouldn't be able to defend their trophy.
1: Mind-blowing.
3: It is mind-blowing. And also, in, on a similar note, if we've got time, it's going to be a very long podcast, I had a—I wrote about um, in my last column about Frank Worthington and seeing Frank Worthington score a goal for Huddersfield, which it turned out it, he didn't actually score. Mm. And my friend Mick Hydes from Ashington, who used to edit the Pit Pony Express, the great Ashington FC fanzine, got in touch. And he said that he also... The First game that he ever went to at St. James's Park, he saw Frank Worthington score a goal in Leicester 1-1-0, and Frank Worthington got the goal. And he said later on, he met the, the Newcastle goalkeeper at that time was Ian McFall. And he met Ian McFall and he said, Oh yeah, that, that was first he was telling him about this first game. And Ian McFall said, Oh, I remember that because Worthington, it was a hand of God goal. Worthington punched it, he put he didn't head it, he punched it <laughs> into the net. And then Mick said later on he looks it up. And it turned out that actually Steve Earle scored the goal. So so not only did he misremember it, but Ian McFaul misremembered it as well, and he was actually playing in the game. So there we are. Oh, it's been all go.
1: God, you you don't record for three weeks and everything happens.
2: Exactly. <laughs>
1: Andy, beyond the Tunnocks, we've had that break since we last recorded, so any joyous goings on in old London town?
2: Uh, Well, I actually have some other other Tunnocks news, actually, I I should mention first, as mentioned Mm. in our weekly newsletter. um, Inverness, CT and Wraith have been named the joint winners of the 2019-20 Tunnocks Caramel Wafer Challenge Cup as the final won't take place due to to COVID. And this could be the solution for another tournament that never got finished, um, which we wrote about in WSC once the... um, Anglo-Scottish Cup Winners' Cup of 1987, Coventry against St Mirren. It was the the first and only um, edition of that competition. They only played the first leg, which is a draw at St Mirren, but they've never sorted out a date for the second game and still not found a free day to play. It's been 34 years (laughs) and they still haven't played it. I mean, how, how busy can both clubs be? I mean, award the trophy jointly, for God's sake. Maybe get tunnocks involved in it in some capacity. Um, as also mentioned, I should say in our weekly email and newsletter recently as well, I should say this, um, it's a bit of North East news, um, or North East and indeed Scottish news. Um, Alan Shearer is now in the Orkney Wild Brown Trout Fishing Hall of Fame. So well done, Alan. <laughs> You've come a long way for a sheet metal worker's son from wherever. <laughs> and you'd hope he does his trademark celebration when he catches one then maybe he'd fall in the water if he did that he'd look and kind of charge off his arm in the air drop the fish and then fall head first into the water also I should say a bit of uh, politics news um, WC contributor um, as I think I can call him um, Andy Burnham did well in being re-elected by a huge margin as mayor of uh, Greater Manchester he's the only former WC writer who uh, used to write he wrote for us when he was at supporters direct uh, to be a, 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 sit, a mayor as far as I know But let us know if you've also, if you've done both those things, or even did one of them. Or not, not, don't let us know if you've been a WC contributor, but at least let us know if you've been a mayor.
1: And issue 410 of the magazine is out now, and the letters pages are once again full of intrigue. Which letters did you enjoy in particular, Andy?
2: Uh, well, there's one from Mark Bloomfield. Mark Bloomfield on the sub. We've had this long-running thing on the subject of meeting footballers, and he says he once bumped into Billy Bonds, who's scouting out his uh, his hall of residence with his daughter at University of Southampton. Billy Bonds is then manager of West Ham, who are bottom of the First Division, and he said Billy uh, signed the first thing that came to my hand, which is a copy of the Hall Rag mag that was on a table nearby. But only later did I realise that on the other side of the page he signed was a crossword containing the clue. Crap football, crap football team managed by B Bonds, <laughs> and his daughter ended up not going to that college. So it's possible that he, you know, took a copy of the Ragbag to read later, and then decided that, as as Mark puts it, it decided a higher education establishment less critical of his management abilities was in order. Different sort of encounter with with, with a, a, a player as well um, from Lee Donaldson, who mentioned that some years ago. I visited the Hibs Club shop to buy a Christmas present. As I left, I bumped into Mixu Pataline and finished uh, Strikers and with Hibs and asked for his autograph. When I got back to my car, I realised that Mixu had gone off with my wallet, which I'd given, him to, I'd given to him to sign so he had something to lean on as he provided his autograph. He said, I, I hear that the wages are much better at Hibs these days. I'm happy to say I did, I did get my wallet back in the end. So have you ever been inadvertently robbed by a footballer? Uh, also, let us know. There was a letter about um, Brian Pop Robson uh, oh. Often it seems to
3: be often mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> yes, um, he's, <laughs> and, uh, he's joined the there's a, there's a good letter about him, and that from Alan Parkinson in Sunderland. That he got, a, he wrote to him and got a signed uh, photograph from Pop Robson. And his brother was particularly jealous because, firstly, firstly, because a shot from Pop Robson had actually broken his glasses when he was standing in the forward end, but also because he'd written to Stan Cummings, asking for Stan Cummings' autograph, and Stan Cummings hadn't replied. But then a few weeks later, he did get the signed photograph from Stan Cummings, including an apologetic letter in which Stan said that he was sorry, and then he said, the letter has been shoved behind the clock on the mantelpiece. (laughs) So that was Stan's excuse, and also there's a nice letter from uh, D. Scott Cree of Southfields, in which uh, about working in the W. H. Smiths at North Terminal of Gatwick Airport and his encounter with uh, Meek McCarthy and Ronnie Corbett not not together, yes. I should add, which would be quite a, that would be the start of a, of a sitcom yes. with together at last, Ronnie Corbett, um, in which Ronnie Corbett emerges as the as the better man, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> or at least the least the less brusque. Who would have thought that, actually? In the sitcom or the letter? Not even the letter.
1: In the sitcom. I don't know. It's all getting confused now, Dan. I feel
3: like that goalkeeper at Rothbury.
1: And now, yet more exciting news. It's time for another When Saturday Comes live online event on Thursday, June 3rd at 8pm. I'll be joined by Josh Widdicombe, Ellis James and Sean McGuigan for Trans Europa Express, an evening of European Championship memories and musings covering everything from home nation's prospects to Jorigella's nefarious influence on Euro 96. Plus, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel Tickets cost £10. Get yours at whensaturdaycomes.eventbrite.co.uk. That's event, B-R-I-T-E. Or members of the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club get discounts depending on their tiers. Log in to patreon.com slash comes and find the relevant post to get your discount code. Then follow the link to Eventbrite to get a ticket. That's just one bonus of joining our Supporters Club, which also entitles you to at least twice as much of our half-decent podcast chatter. Imagine that. (laughs) Andy has discussed issue 410 of When Saturday Comes Magazine is out now. Tell us more.
2: Well, I see I've, I've actually got written down here four hundred and eleven. So like that goalkeeper, I'm I'm, I'm slightly <laughs> ahead of myself. So I'd better not predict what's in next month. So in uh, four ten. We've got a big feature on the on the uh, the twenty uh, the forty eight hour European Super League, um, which um was born and died uh, during last month. Um one looking at the concept of of the legacy fan, which is supposedly how some clubs see their long term supporters, compared to the new fans they're now chasing around the world. Also look at Real Madrid and Barcelona's debts, how badly they're being run, and, and the way they're generally being supported by by the Spanish media and and the Spanish state, both seen as I think as businesses that, are, as the phrase goes, too big to fail. Also look at how Liverpool fans responded to their owner their owners FSG's involvement, and uh, also how players and managers generally have been quite critical of of the ESL players. Plans. We've got a piece for the um, our regular object lessons feature by Will Green about uh, an Oxford United cap that he's got from the 1988 League Cup final win and um, he's never actually lived in Oxford. He grew up in the North East so he's mostly gone to away games over the years and the cap, as he writes, he'd like to say inherited it from his dad but his dad wasn't actually able to go to that final so he bought it on eBay and doesn't ever want to wear it in case he damages it. Do other people have items of clothing related to their team that they don't ever want to wear? I guess that probably does happen sometimes. We also got a piece by um, Gordon Cairns looking at an attempt, a previous, uh, an early attempt to reform the Scottish League in the 60s based on attendance figures that would have led to five teams being booted out of the league altogether and involved cutting the league down. Um, so Albion Rovers, Berwick, uh, Breek and Strenner and Stenhouse-Mill would have been uh, jettisoned, even though they weren't the bottom five teams in the lower division. They took legal action, but then they voted in favour of another reform that involved reorganising divisions that then got voted down, also in the mid-60s. The big reform, of course, didn't happen in Scotland until 74, and there's been another one since. The Carling Nations Cup of 2011, which is a one-off tournament, it wasn't supposed to be one-off, but uh, involving um, both Ireland, Scotland and Wales an article by Joey Miller. This was supposed to be held every two years but it was jettisoned after the first one, staged in Dublin because of uh, of low crowds. Not helped by an Icelandic volcano, the name of which I'm not going to try and pronounce, um, exploding over a weekend when fans might otherwise have travelled to Dublin from from Wales and Scotland. Um, not mentioned in the article, but I think an Icelandic volcano exploding was one of the causes of uh, Bronze Age civilization collapse, I think, in in Europe around 1200 BC, end of Mycenaean civilization, huge movement of people that led to invasions of Egypt by people from the Mediterranean. Uh, Anyway, this was similar. (laughs) Um, and uh, uh, Ireland are the holders of the trophy uh, in perpetuity Uh, and uh, we've also of course got Harry's column this month which is about uh, amongst other things is about klaxons it's sort of about klaxons because I thought that
3: I, I remember the sound I think we've talked about it on this podcast maybe very early on in the early days of this podcast about the sound of the of the klaxon being the sound of European football but it turns out that that's not the sound of the air horn is the sound of European football that mournful the mournful wail of the air horn the claxon makes a characteristic a wooger noise, <laughs> and uh, I think it might be the one that they use as the hooter at the end of rugby league um which would make sense because one of the great epicenters of claxon manufacturing is oldham ah oh. that's um, a fascinating fact. yeah um so yes yeah, so it's many it's many about air horns but also about the uh the popularity the strange popularity of air raid sirens, which Andy also mentioned earlier on in this podcast in a in a moment of synchronicity if that if that's correct that uh air raid sound is very popular in non-league football it, it so it transpires um and my column also contains a, a story about a parrot called me too as well i don't know how that all fitted together if it all fitted together but i think it did
1: in a kind of way <laughs> the only thing missing was a reference to the borough bugler i felt
3: oh the bugler yeah well i didn't want to get into that because then you've got to do the band as well that, the, the england band
1: Oh, that's true.
3: I did like it, because if you listen to the to match of the day in the early sixties, you often hear the honking of a horn, which are those those old fashioned car horns with that <laughs> had a kind of rubber bulb on the end, which clowns would carry, wouldn't they? You know, and would honk usually if they said, oh, possibly even, um, which was the Marx brother who couldn't talk. Which one was that? Harpo. Harpo. I'm sure he would run around with one of those, wouldn't he, and honk it when he saw a woman who was attractive—that sort of thing. You hear that noise sometimes at English football, but rarely the, air, the the air horn. And I don't really understand what the point of the air horn was. I say in the piece because it does—it's not really an inspirational sound. At least the bugle could could call the it could sound the charge on a bugle, but with a with an air horn, all you can do is kind of go. Moo, like I don't think that would inspire anyone. Yeah, it's a bit defeatist,
2: isn't it? It's a bit melancholy.
3: That's what I felt about it actually. When you hear it in the background, it's a sort of sad. It's a bit like the sort of hearing the last post or something. Yeah, like it's like, oh, we
2: might we might as well give up, you know. And we've got, um, you know, we've got yeah, fish so it's fingers just, for it's, tea It sounds again.
3: like someone's, it sounds like that someone's just gone. This is this sound is the sound of the futility of human existence.
1: I've been watching clips from Euro '92 for a piece um writing, and in the Scotland games, the air horn meets the bagpipes in a cataclysm of hideous din so at least it's not one thing we've not mentioned that comes free or two things that we've not mentioned that come free with this issue of when saturday comes andy is the magnificent wall chart which is very much loved on twitter already and the euro 2020 giveaway booklet fantastic things again
2: Yes, uh, wall chart designed as ever by uh, one of our uh, two regular cartoonists, Dave Robinson, who's done uh, fine work on WC wall Chart since Euro 92, I think was the, f- the very first one we did. Yeah, we have a supplement, question answers, and written pieces on all 24 teams by ver- our various correspondents uh, around Europe. So, yes, look out for both of those.
1: Jackpot tickets. Pound of gold, draw it off time, £500 prize draw Get your, your hats, hats and scarves out. and pin badges Your hats and scarves and pin badges Get your hats and scarves and pin badges Pin badges, hats, scarves Hats and scarves and pin badges Program. Program. Programmes! Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw at half time. Pounds, you're to take on right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Neil Poynton, Darlington Railway Athletic FC, stewards with ulterior <coughs> motives. Oh, and it's landed on disappearing skills. Andy, what on earth does that entirely random subject bring to mind?
2: Well, Neil Poynton, I, I should just say, you mentioned it. when he first moved to Everton, was nicknamed Dissa. You get it? Oh, very
1: good.
2: Yeah. Oh, right, gotcha, yeah. Because he that's like, he, that's, like he,
3: Ju- that's like Gordon Jewry, nicknamed Jukebox, isn't it? yeah. that. he? He was brought it into it.
2: Actually, he played in a team that won the league, 86-87, But uh, people were a bit uh, weren't sure about him at first, and that was that was his nickname. So, sorry, Neil, to, if you're listening to be, to bring that up again, he probably doesn't like to hear about it. And um, but also Everton actually feature <laughs> a bit in this disappearing skill thing. Uh, first thing that c- comes to mind for me is um, Ernie Hunt um, scoring for Coventry against Everton in nineteen seventy what's referred to as the donkey kick goal. Uh, His teammate Willie Carr stands facing away from the ball, holds the ball between his heels, flicks it up sideways, and Ernie Hunt volleys it in. It was BBC goal of the season, 1970-71, but subsequently banned by the FA for being unsporting, being unsporting against Everton, actually, which is one of the rules that should be enforced more often, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Ernie Hunt had previously had a short and fairly unsuccessful spell at Everton, so maybe he was especially... um, Fired up for that. Also, kind of sort of hop related of course as Cuatamoc Blanco, of Mexico, who did which we've mentioned before his um bunny hop skill, where he'd hold the ball between his feet and then jump forwards, so, which I always particularly liked. Cause it looked like the kind of thing, like the kind of skill uh, uh, from a story in a kid's comic by someone who'd grown up amongst you know giant rabbits or <laughs> kangaroos possibly. <laughs> Blanco I've now seen is, is now a provincial governor in Mexico in Morelos province for a left coalition. Always nice to hear about ex-footballers who are involved in politics who aren't, <laughs> who aren't vehemently right-wing. It nice; makes a nice change. But I, I think that is, it's perhaps less common in Latin America than, than elsewhere. But I hope he's still able to find ways to work his bunny hop into his public engagements. I'm sure he does. And so maybe that's when he appears on stage, he just sort of jumps forward in, in that manner. I think that's less prevalent now than they used to be. I forget, they've definitely faded away a bit. It's the multiple step over. The most famous expert, famous exponent to this for a while, 20 years ago, so I was. Nielsen, Brazilian, who moved to Betis in Spain for a huge amount of money at the time, I think Betis were looking to challenge Real Madrid and Barcelona, um, but he wasn't a success, it was a bit like he got found out, he he played there for for several years, but Betis never really achieved much with him, and I remember he came at the end of the uh, 2002 World Cup final, Brazil two up and about to win against uh, Germany, and he just did his party piece of, of kind of just multiple stepos kind of pursued by German defenders around one Area of the pitch, and I'm not generally an advocate of violent play, but I did slightly hope that one of them would, would, would chop him down. Unfortunately, none of them managed to catch him. I so thought it was a nice end to that World Cup, and possibly a fitting end to this slightly annoying step over thing. She should also mention um, Dr. Kumalo, Kumalo well known South African midfield player in the 90s, played in a couple of World Cups. His real middle name actually was Doctorson, one word, Doctorson. Theophilus Doctorson, hence the part of where the doctor um, nickname comes from. He did various unusual skills on the pitch, one of which involved standing on the ball. I remember seeing him do this in an international match. I don't think it was a, during the World Cup. It must have been a, it was a televised game, it must have been a friendly, but I remember he got booked for it. But he did it in the centre circle, and this sort of stuff, you thought, doing fancy bits in the middle of the pitch, I mean, it's, it's okay, I suppose, but, you know, it's more impressive, that kind of stuff, if it leads to a goal, which it really doesn't. I've always kind of felt it with the people who do, all well, you know, those ball juggling skills before games, or I'm sure they'd probably say skills with a with a Z, you know, skills. <laughs> um but you can't kind of think, yeah, they're okay, but nobody's challenging you, are they? You know, Diego Maradona could do some of that stuff while being pursued by some murderous central defender, you know. Whereas these ball skills people they, they do it for hard time displays, they always seem a bit always seem a bit up themselves to me. You know, they make a big deal of waving to the crowd afterwards and the, applauding the the crowd's supposedly um, huge applause as, as, as thanking people for the reception they've had. As if they've had like an ecstatic response. When, from what I can remember, usually they just get kind of mild applause, but less applause than there'd be for a a dog display team. You know, where the dogs <laughs> jump through hoops or, or form a pyramid or read a novel or whatever it is the dog display teams do.
3: And for you, Harry, Andy mentioned Denilson there, and I was at, I was at, I, he came on in the '98 World Cup in a game when Brazil beat Morocco four 0 and he was brought on as a substitute and it was the first time I we'd seen well, I'd seen him play um, and it was just after this i think it might have been a world record transfer fee to betis but anyway he came on and he He did one step over, a second step over, a third step over, a fourth step over. Then he did a fifth step over. And by the time he'd finished it, the ball had actually run out of play. I was sitting (laughs) next to a German journalist and he just turned to me and said, this guy is shit. (laughs) Which actually was pretty accurate. Um, I was thinking, uh, when you're at at football now, after there's been a particularly savage tackle, there's always someone behind you who shouts out, away ref, he got a bit of the ball. (laughs) <laughs> and when I was a boy there was a similar thing that that people used to shout it was shoulder to shoulder <laughs> and that the old shoulder charge was a very popular yeah. thing a skill let's call it <laughs> which which I think has disappeared from the game now
1: Fair shoulder charge was the now, fair, shoulder, it, fair had shoulder be,
3: charge. it had to be shoulder to shoulder, but the problem with that was that people are of varying heights so at six foot five if I, was to, if I wanted to do a shoulder charge on a normal sized person i 'd have to actually crouch slightly, <laughs> which obviously people don 't do so what looked so often it wasn 't shoulder to shoulder it was shoulder to face uh, quite commonly I mean some of the most notorious shoulder charges Nat that loft house on Harry Gregg. Uh, in the 1958 FA Cup final, where Nat Loftus just goes in shoulder to shoulder on Harry Gregg and just deposits him in the back of the net with the ball, and then turns away with this gleeful look on his face as if he's just volleyed in from thirty yards. <laughs> Even worse than that was, I think the was of this. I think it might have been the, the FA Cup final the year before. That was Peter Mc. Peter McParland of Aston Villa, Northern Ireland international, who went in shoulder to shoulder on Roy Ray Wood in the Manchester United goal and actually broke his cheekbone. And of course, Trevor Ford as well. Who, who uh, talking of world record transfer fees, he was signed from Aston Villa by Sunderland. That was, a, I think, was the world record transfer fee. And he was notoriously rough. I'm pretty sure in his opening game for Sunderland. He broke a goalpost, broke an opponent's jaw and shoulder charged the opposition goalkeeper into the back of the net. But, but like many men who were violent, he was Trevor Ford was also quite sensitive about his reputation. And uh, when Gil Merrick, the England goalkeeper of that era, wrote his autobiography, I See It All, he criticised um, Trevor Ford in it, saying that Trevor Ford was a danger to goalkeepers. And Trevor Ford sued him for libel and won £250 in damages, which it later emerged was the exact amount of money that Gil Merrick had been paid for writing his autobiography, so <laughs> yeah. he lost the whole lot for oh. just for criticising Trevor Ford. And perhaps on a similar note and, the, and a reason why they did this was I remember that goalkeepers always, when they collected the ball, they always pulled their knees up in front of them. Mm-hmm. A bit like if you're do, if you you when you were doing circuit training when you were at school, you had to do those jumps where you lifted your knees up to your chest goalkeepers always used to jump like that i don't think they do it anymore and i think that was probably to protect themselves from men like peter mcparland and, and trevor ford and that Loftus. so you don't often see you don't see that as much and it did remind me that uh, the notorious harold schumacher foul on patrick battiston in 1982 i think that was on a that game was played on a friday night and on the saturday i was playing cricket and one of the people in my cricket team I'm sure I've mentioned this before, it's been, it's, it was Tony Curry, the great um, England midfield player, who was at that time playing for QPR. I remember in the dressing room before we went out, you know, people were saying to Tony Curry, did you see that foul? That was terrible, that was terrible. And then Tony Curry just kind of shrugged and he went, if you go in with a keeper like that, he's going he's gonna to wipe you out. They're the dirtiest <laughs> bastards on the field. And that was that. And I thought, oh, I've learned something about the game an insight into the game from that. Uh, another disappearing skill, or it doesn't really disappear, but not mentioned as much as it used to be, is the body swerve. Uh, Stanley Matthews had a famous body swerve. In fact, Stanley Matthews had a double body swerve in which he made it look. He sw- he, he swayed as if to go outside the man, then swayed as if to go inside the man and then Went outside him, and that was Stanley Matthews. It was his. It was his double body swerve, and Bobby Charlton was very influenced by Stanley Matthews, and he had a body swerve too. Rather cruelly, it's it's said there's a famous photo of Bobby Charlton with, with his scrape-over hairdo flying out to one side, and it's often said that his body swerve was so good it even sent his hair the wrong way. <laughs> but I did notice that what Bobby Charlton was his body swerve is described as being swallow-like, which suggests Bobby kind of scudding low over the Old Trafford turf with his mouth open, catching flies and drinking dew off the grass. George Best, also a, a good body surf. And Chris Waddle, of course, he he had a body surf as well, we often referred to as dropping his shoulder. He would drop one shoulder, but then he would go the other way. Well, I, don't, I never really understood the drop shoulder thing, why, why that indicates that you're going in in that <laughs> direction. I'm not really sure. But bit, I suppose a bit of a variation on what Ron Atkinson always used to say, he's given the goalkeeper the eyes. <laughs> didn't he? Which meant looking one way and then kicking it another. Um, so I think the body swerve has a kind of element of that, and obviously it is still about in the game, but you don't hear it. It was always talked about when I was a boy. The body swerve thing—that was a
1: big, you know—that was a the body swerve was a big deal in those days. I'm going to try dropping my shoulder in the street just next time I need to get around someone. Or does that mean they'll walk right into me? I think doesn't it?
3: Well, I don't know. It depends, Dan, doesn't it? It depends because because the thing with Stanley Matthews was he always looked as if he was going to go inside the fullback, and he always went outside them, and he just mm. did it every he did it every time, and they were always fooled by it. Because um, I did read an interview with Chris Wardle where he was saying about the step over thing and going back to Denilson and said, you know, there's no point in doing it if you're five yards away from the defender. You have to do it when you you near him. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a waste of it's just a waste of time. It is just literally
2: a circus trick. You know. I also wonder whether sometimes maybe famously skillful players who who were in the earlier days of football, perhaps who were known to draw the crowds, were maybe allowed to get away with stuff. Sometimes I haven't seen it suggested that Stanley Matthews, uh, for example. Did occasion get with maybe shoving a fullback out of the way sometimes because yeah. people wanted to see Sun. It was a bit like in much of the same way. It wasn't it a case that WG Grace used to be legitimately given out a few times before he was really given out? And he would argue that people have come to see me bat not not to get out for three or something.
3: That's right, exactly. That's what yes, what you said yesterday. They've come to see me bat, not you, umpire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he was—he was—he wasn't—he was, he was notorious. He—he he would glare at the umpire, and his influence was so great that they would give him not out. There's a sorry on a, on a there's a famous incident with a fast bowler called Charles Courtright, who was also a, a, a great amateur player, and after two appeals, when he was Grace was caught out, and he was caught out twice but both times just glared at the umpire. So the umpire gave him not out and finally Courtright bowled him. And then as WG Grace is walking back to the pavilion, Courtright shouted after him, not leaving us, surely, doctor, there's still one stump standing.
1: <laughs> Talking of that Matthews era, I was reading the first edition of the Middlesbrough programme after we moved to the Riverside or the Selnet Riverside Stadium in 1995 and there was an interview with a fan who was then in his early 90s and so he was able to answer the question what's your best borough 11 with things like oh Hardwick, Mannion and all of those names no room for Trevor Putney and and when asked (laughs) to recall a moment from the past he claimed he'd seen Wilf Mannion pick up the ball somehow on his head on the halfway line and then balance it on his head, head it up all the way towards the Blackpool goal. I don't know if it resulted in a goal or not. So he claimed Mannion had carried the ball on his head for the entire half of the pitch. So I was wondering if you two had any examples of those acts of daring do that have gone down in legend and that you've, you've heard before. Another person once told me, a Barnsley fan told, told me that he'd seen Ronnie Glavin hop over a fullback's head, put the ball around him and jump over him which just sounds like rubbish but I enjoyed it all the same
3: well there's a, the famous thing in uh, Newcastle is where Kenny Wharton sitting on the ball In the, I think there's a game when Gascoigne maybe Gascoigne Beardsley and Waddle was still certainly Gascoigne was playing and Kenny Wharton sits on the ball which is like a legend it's a, it's a legendary thing <laughs> in Newcastle I suppose the same way because Jim Baxter sat on the ball didn't he in, in Wem, uh, Wembley in 68 is that right
2: I think that I think people have actually said that didn't he, he did keep uppies with with Dennis Law uh, towards right. the end when they're winning and they that's that's on the TV coverage. But I think people have debated whether he actually did do that. It was assumed I think it was people thought he had kind of thing. Willie Johnson did it for Rangers against Bayern Munich in a Europe that's on YouTube actually a European game in about seventy two. Briefly sits on the ball. Another thing that didn't really happen but was kind of a mythical thing is of players. Taking out a comb and combing the hair while on the ball. I've heard, I've heard that being attributed to two or three players. I hope that was Bobby Charlton. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's going to take a while. It back into
2: place. <laughs> Crimping it.
1: I was also wondering if you had any instances of when pieces of equipment have allegedly been able to aid a type of skill you know, in the case Craig Johnston's added Adidas Predator, supposedly enabling players to bend the ball more efficiently. I'm I've sort of think about, thinking about
3: sort of toys, I suppose, but I'm sure there was a letter in When Saturday Comes Once so about something that was a ball on a piece of elastic that you had and you wore a belt and it was supposed to say so you could kick the ball and it came back to you. Um, and the And the guy said that he he kicked it really hard, and of course it just flew back straight into his testicles, so that obviously didn 't teach him anything at all except not to kick a ball on a piece of elastic that 's round your waist
2: although that is a very useful life lesson though' it? <laughs> it is, really and the kind of thing they don 't tell you at school. <laughs>
1: time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com Andy, what have you picked this time?
2: Well, my song is from 2019, it's uh, my Ooh. bid to stay relevant, you know, I'm, I'm all about <laughs> the now, um, it's uh, me pidas que deje el Atletico de Madrid don't ask me to leave Atletico Madrid, as you can probably tell from my flawless uh, Spanish pronunciation, by uh, Emilio Elegante. It says, it also says on the cover, it describes it as a healthy dose of R&B and soul. It does have a slight mid-sixties feel to it. it makes you something you, you, you might hear down the the Marquee Club while you're wearing a t-shirt with some chevrons on. Um, Spanish football does need uh, something healthy just now, I think. Anyway, I mean Atletico possibly the least objectionable of of the big three there, though it's all relative, um, in a good position to win the league this season. And just because it it will piss off uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona and the the many media backers, that's over happens this time. So uh, good on you, Atletico.
1: Harry, what's your choice? Um, Well, I've gone for um, DJ
3: DSL and fan club Erdberg, Anton Polster, Dubis Leyvand, which I assume means legend. Um, I picked it partly because I learned this week from Twitter that in the Danish word for mullet is Bundesliga-haar, which literally means bundesliga hair, as you can imagine. And, of course, uh, Tony Polster, um, when he was playing for Cologne, um, he was uh, did sport a legendary kind of permed mullet. Um, I should say that uh, that Rudy Voller had one as well, and I think it was voted by German Germany fans the most iconic haircut in football history, although at the time he was nicknamed Anti Calf because of his haircut, although he also had a moustache, which is a bit off-putting, really, for, for aunties. Um, so anyway, so this is about Tony Polster, who uh, was Austria's... Uh, top goal scorer Um, and he was nicknamed tony double pack not because of his waistline but because of his habit of scoring two goals in a game Um, and he did actually record his own uh, religious album called tony polster und die bible which is a 40-day course of bible study prayer and devotional music
1: Choice. Well, York City have finally arrived on the website, and this is Hello Den Got a New Striker by John Byrne and his fellow York City teammates. It's the B side of a version of Here We Go, commemorating Minster Men's 83 84 Division 4 Championship win, and possibly the strangest, most slightly chilling record we've ever had. I did read on the website that it's a, it's a pastiche of Alexi Sales' Hello John Got a Motor, apparently. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Glenn Wilson, When Saturday Comes contributor and editor of Popular Stand, the Doncaster Rovers fanzine. Popular Stand
4: was set up in in 1998. I mean, as as a lot of people will be aware, 97-98 was... Was Doncaster Overs, uh most probably horrific year in their history as they were plummeting out of the the football league with um, Chief Arsonist uh, Ken Richardson at the helm. Um, and there was a few other fanzines at the time for Doncaster. There was uh, raised the roof, uh, no smoking in the main stands. Keegan was crap really. Um, but then the the guys that set popular stand up initially, Liam and. And Dave, they they felt that those fanzines were being too easy on on the club's owners and and the people causing the club's plight. So they set up an additional fanzine. It's hard to think of a, a club of Doncaster size with four fanzines now, but they set up an additional fanzine to to put that pressure on. Really, um, so it managed, I think, two issues at the end of the ninety seven ninety eight season before those people, you know, finally left the club, and they they kept the pressure on to so sort of the new people that came in at 98 99 um so the fanzine was quite frequent in those those first few years and then has been kept going ever since really and i think we've tried to i mean i got involved i think issue 10 i think was the time i first wrote a piece We're up to issue 104 now um you know i was i was still a sick you know in, in school in sixth form when i first wrote for the fanzine um and then i took over as editor about probably ten years ago now when we were on issue fifty two. So I think well yeah, I'm responsible for half our issues now, I suppose. But um but we've tried to maintain tame what it always stood for Pakistan, which is to be an independent platform for fans to speak out on. And obviously sometimes in a club's history there's there's more need to speak out than others. I think we're in a position now where the club's board are quite sensible they get what what football is and what football fans are about which can make it hard to produce a fanzine sometimes when things are going quite smoothly but you know with we've, we've maintained that that independence throughout those years and that's what I've been been keen to do and and, and build on what we had really and, and the, the fanzine for a time under the, the editor previous to me it had a policy of um if you write it we print it which is a you know, as a as a it's a great socialist ethos, really, and and accessibility, but it kind of meant the the quality suffered a bit, really. So when I took over from the previous editors who who had to stop because their time didn't allow, my my aim was to try and keep being what we'd always been, which was that that platform for fans, keep raising money for like the local community, which we've done ever since, and and I think we were raised about ten thousand pounds now, but also. Be a quality publication because there's no reason why we couldn't do those things and, and be that as well. And and there's some great talent in Doncaster, that but often the town suffers from being quite parochial and people within it do as well. I think so. It's trying to build the fanzine up, and you know, there's there's no reason why a fanzine for a, cl- a smaller club like Doncaster shouldn't couldn't be held in the, the same esteem as bigger fanzines of bigger clubs without. You know, surrendering what it stood for. And that's that's kind of what we've tried to do with stand mm. ever since.
1: It's a real thrill knowing that a fanzine is still going and, and a greater thrill when you hear of a new one starting up as well, which is happening more and more, I think. Who's buying it now? Are you managing to find a younger audience, if you can think back to that pre-match day part where you stand outside the ground? And is it still being mistaken for the programme? <laughs> oh i mean
4: yeah it's it's not a program is pretty much a catchphrase of our of our sellers yeah, I think the the selling point is still only a pound, still not a program um when we stand outside um but yeah it's we are pr- primarily a print fanzine. We, we've we've gone into other areas you know we're on social media, we have a website we we have a a, a, a podcast well. We have we have a podcast it might not be as regular as this one but we have a podcast that occasionally we get round to recording um but we do all those things i feel as a subsidiary to the print fanzine you know above all we are a print fanzine that's what we're about that's that's what we do so those things offer us a way for us to get a different audience to the fanzine because people who've who were around in the eighties and and nineties and when popular stands started, perhaps even at the end of the nineties, they know what a fanzine is. They know, you know, they know all about it. It was the voice of the fans then, when there was no online uh, discussion happening. So they know what it is. So they they they're either they're either four banner fanzine or they're not. And by now we kind of know you know them on site. You know, when you stand outside the going, you can see the person walking towards you. Yeah, that person's bought one before. This will be a sale. The, the getting new people in is a challenge. I think our audience is a. An older audience as a result but you know we constantly try and do what we can to encourage new new people to buy it by you know by sharing stuff on social media by being in those discussions and and on forums and things like that just hoping people will try it out and just see it i mean ultimately it's it's only a pound so we've made it as accessible as possible you know we were encouraged by some regular readers to try and charge a bit more but when you know as you say back in the days when we did stand outside grounds to sell things it it was um a pound's just the easiest amount to take of money off people you know it's 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 a very low cost commitment to trying something new um we've switched now to being almost pay what you feel so we're minimum a pound so we can still shout that it's a pound and try and entice new readers in but if people wish to pay more than that, they can and they know that any profit we make is going to go to a local good cause. So that swings people into paying a bit more. But it's, yeah, finding that balance is hard and bringing new new fans into to what it is is hard. But pre-coronavirus, we were selling more copies than ever. We were you know, up to a, a print run of 450 or so, um, which is much more than we were selling in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, it's dipped a bit since COVID because we've had to go subscription only for this season as a way to do it but hopefully when fans can get back into grounds we'll we'll find a way to get ourselves outside grounds selling again, telling people it's not a programme telling people where the away entrance is
1: um, we're just acting as uh, non-bibbed stewards if you like <laughs> So moving on to you Glenn and your supporting life why and when did you become a Donny fan?
4: The first time I went to a Donkaslaeva's match was Boxing Day 99, and I was actually in the away end. Um, It was the sort of Kent side of my family, an auntie, uncle, and grandparent who were Maidstone United fans and Maidstone were playing Doncaster on Boxing Day. So they they took me with them, uh, and I got let into the ground for free. The away fans were in the old main stand at Bellevue, and a policeman just kind of went to me, "Oh, go go in that gate and wait for your mum and dad at the top of the stairs not put off at all by me running past him shouting they're not my mum and dad you know it was a different time um but that that was my first introduction so it wasn't I went to occasional games after that um every now and again but I was I was involved my dad was involved with local village football so I was always following the village team everywhere on a Saturday until I was 15 and it was during that 1997-98 season towards the end of there a few mates from school were going and the village team's fixtures had finished, and I went on along to a couple of those late season games. Um, and that last game, Rovers had in the football league in in nineteen ninety eight. I was there on the pitch with with the other fans singing, "We'll support you evermore." And you know, I, I hate to be a hypocrite at the end of the day, so I uh, I have been a fan ever ever since. So that yeah, they're my hometown team, and it's now you know it's I left Doncaster when I was 18 and I haven't really lived back there for any length of time since. So it's now it's a, for me, it's a big connection with my hometown and where I grew up and, and friends from home because my family isn't there anymore either. So it's, it's a big connection to my past really, I think through following Don Rovers. <Costa> mm, absolutely.
1: So then what have been the worst of times?
4: That 97, 98 season although I was only there for the very end of it, it it speaks for itself in a lot of ways. Um, You know, there is no other football season like it, not even for us, but just for anyone. You know, there's stories from that season which to us as Rovers fans are just very normal. You try and communicate that to other people and it just sounds ridiculous. You know, like there was one game against Hull where, you know, the plan was, okay, Alan's going to go and chain himself to the goalpost, and while he causes that distraction, we're going to go and sit in the centre circle. Like, All right, yeah, fine. That's 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 what we'll do today then. And it's just things like that. Just just you know put that into perspective. Here, where your chairman's you know about to be up for an arson charge against his own property. The the manager used to manage a a club lottery and that is now managing a football team and has signed himself on and we're playing the youth team. You know, it's just a ridiculous set of circumstances that we're being allowed to, to spiral. Um, I mean, since then the 2011, 12, the season we, after four years, we came out of the, the championship would be a real testing point. I think the Rovers fans have been very, Solid all on our progression from the conference up to the second tier, and then things had got a bit stale in the second tier. Sean sure O'Driscoll was was sacked very um, un- ungraciously, I would say, um, for results on the pitch. But I felt that like as a club we were more than that at the time, and, and in came an approach led by the the agent uh, Willie Mackay, which just for me. Never looked like a positive move. There were just so many faults with it. It was so at odds with everything that had gone at the club before. We were suddenly just signing big name players on no basis and for no, you know, where the only people to profit out of it would be the agent and the player. And it just seemed so at odds. And me and the fanzine were very vocal against it when we got a lot of kickback and, and abuse from other fans for that. The supporters. Trust at the time were perhaps too close, the people involved in them were too close to the chairman. So rather than airing fans' concerns, we're airing the chairman's thoughts back at us. And it was just a very unfortunate, very messy time. And I think it took a long time after that for the fans to to properly come back together. And I think unfortunately one of the, the outfalls of that is there's still a a proportion of Rose fans have a mistrust of the, the supporters' trust, even though it's different people involved now. And I think that's that's a shame because a lot of
1: people have forgotten what that body stands for and can do Mm, for fans. Absolutely. Thinking back to that earlier worst of times, uh, I was going to say, luckily it's caught on film. It's not lucky that it's caught on film because it's a a very sad thing for you to watch, I imagine, (laughs) but it has been mentioned on this podcast before with the child vampire at the start of that documentary that can be found on YouTube. (laughs) Have you ever met the child goalkeeping vampire? Um,
4: no. (laughs) But no, I haven't. There's other people in those films that were children then that are very grizzled <laughs> uh, middle-aged men now, and it is strange looking back. I'm not sure who the child vampire was. It's not like there's not still a vampire. There's not. Still, I can't just go. Oh yeah, that's you know that's Phil oh, the vampire. No, he still you've, goes. <laughs>
1: you've, you've ruined my illusions. Yeah. That's, go, that's, going to, that's going to break Harry's <laughs> heart,
4: but we're, we're, you know. <laughs> oh no, don't tell me that. Um, yeah, it, it's remarkable that so much of it was captured on on film because. I think one of the things when you follow, a if you follow a bigger club, you can look back at like the 60s, 70s, 80s. And now people have put things onto YouTube from those times, from the highlights. But being a fan of a smaller club in a region where there were bigger clubs, you know, goals on Sunday, if you grew up in Yorkshire, was Leeds or Sheffield Wednesday. And then the rest of you were just goal highlights yeah. on the end. So there isn't as much footage of us, of our past history. And it all seems to start. <laughs> with the with the child vampire in ninety seven and all the madness of ninety seven ninety eight and and you know a, a club captain going we're not dead but in football terms we are dead and you think oh god this is this isn't great
1: so so conversely then what have been the best of times
4: to say my support of Don Rovers didn't start well in those terms I, I feel very very blessed to have supported. Doncaster in what's generally been a, a very successful few few decades. You know, we we came up through the conference playoffs, went straight through the then I can't believe the fourth tier, um, and then promotion into the second tier for the, the first time in in half a century. It's just a continuous high really of of seven or eight years there, where we just kept progressing and had a great ethos among the support because of what we'd gone through before. And it was just a great time to be a Rovers fan and to watch the town come back together behind a team that had, that had almost been an embarrassment to the town for quite a long time you know and, and suddenly to see kids out in the street wearing Doncaster Rovers' shirts, which you know when I was at school and I wasn't one of them because I wasn't watching Doncaster then, but you know we knew the one kid that wore a Doncaster shirt in the street. But then suddenly you'd get, you'd look outside and there's, you know, there's half a dozen yeah. in your street wearing Rovers top to play. And that was a great, a great thing. And then, you know, just the other year we had our, our best ever FA Cup run as well. And that's, that's big for me because I absolutely adore the FA Cup. But Doncaster had always been absolutely awful in it. You know, even when we'd entered in the third round, we'd never got past the fourth. So to enter in the first round and get all the way through to the fifth round as we did the other year was brilliant. And, you know, the, the night, after we beat oldham in the fourth round we went back to one of the pubs in doncaster it was just full of people who'd been at the game laughing joking having a beer it was it was everything i hoped getting through to the fifth round of the cup would yeah. be and it was just a great moment again so i'm very lucky that i supported a club at a time when when there's been a you know a huge amount of great moments because when you support your hometown club it's just not guaranteed in any way, shape or form, is it? You, your attachment isn't, you're not a glory hunter, put it that way, and your attachment is based on something else. So when those highs come, it's it's great to be able to enjoy
1: them. Mm. And the big story in the last couple of weeks is the retirement of the the great, great teesider, James Coppinger, really a, a hero in an age of so few of those people who you want on your, on your wall. I was going to say, as a kid, but you probably want posters of him on your wall now, don't you?
4: Well, it's it's absolutely that. You know, I'm James Coppinger's Sort of given so many people who are, you know, in the late 30s like me or older, the excuse to have a favourite footballer <laughs> when you know we should have like a favourite pair of slacks <laughs> or something instead. We we shouldn't be at that age anymore. But he's he's just been such a great a great servant to the club, and I mean, his longevity speaks for itself. You know, 17 seasons what, close to 700 appearances for the club is something like 250 appearances ahead of the next highest appearance yeah. maker um but it's it's more than just that it's you know he has been at the club for a very long time when a lot of players aren't in this day and age he has played, but the other thing is it's not like he's a, he's a grizzled fullback or a, or a center half you know he's, he's a creative talent and it's it's He's given us joy throughout that time as well. You know, it's whatever we've been going through in in life. You know, the, the things you want to, from football, is you want to escape when you turn up at the stadium and you want to, you know, I'd say you want to be a kid for a while. And I had, you know, we had that, On the terraces at Bellevue where we just muck about when we were far too old to be, um, you know, making low monotonous sounds at fullbacks until they messed things up. But we were still (laughs) doing it. And then you move into the more sort of dignified seated stands of the keepo. And the person who brings you that childlike joy is is this guy in midfield who can, can trap a ball instantly, however it's fired at him and you know, just draws you forward in your seat because you want to see what he's going to do next. Is he going to nutmeg that guy? Is he going to just skip past that one? Is he going to chop him inside out a couple of times or just ping a ball over and land it on someone's foot? And he delivered something like that in every single game. You know, there's there's countless highlights from his time with us, from the moments he's been involved with. You know, he, he spans the, the, the teammates that came up into back into the football league twenty years ago to to players that were playing for us at the t- you know in the top half of the championship and back down again. He brings it all together. He played at Bellevue, which seems like an absolute different era now. Um, and he's all these moments from the past fifteen years. You look at them. You look at the goals going in. and If he hasn't scored them, he's the first. He's the second person into the celebration. You know, so he just ties it all together. So it's going to be incredibly strange seeing team sheets without his name on again. Um I've been lucky enough to interview him for the fanzine a couple of years ago for our for our hundredth issue. Um and he's just such a nice bloke as well. He you know he for the skills and the ability he's got, he'd have every right to be quite quite arrogant, but he's he's not in the slightest, you know, he's he, really interested in asking questions about me, which, you know, I've had dates that I haven't <laughs> done that. Um he's just he's just a very pleasant guy, you know, I've I've got his number off the back of that interview and it's been so hard not spending every day this year messaging him to just say, go on, one more year go on, you, you can do it You know, it's he's not retiring based on ability his legs haven't gone, he's retiring because I think if he didn't set a date, he wouldn't um, and it's just a shame that he's gone out in a season where we haven't been able to be there to see him off, I think that's the biggest disappointment, or perhaps the, the only disappointment
1: in his career with us really You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash comes which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.